Hello friends and welcome to episode 35 of the Regenerate Millennial Podcast. As you can probably hear, I'm just getting over or maybe into, hopefully not, a cold or something of that sort. But today's episode, I am pleased to release a sermon that I was asked to preach by my pastor uh, as part of my eldership training at our local church. And the text for today's uh, message is John 19 verses 1 through 16, if you'd like to follow along, which I would encourage you to do. Uh, the text is is a continuation of the narrative of Jesus before Pilate and the Pharisees prior to his crucifixion. As always, no glory to me, none whatsoever. This is all about him. This is all about Jesus, uh, not about me whatsoever. Uh, Jordan and I will be back soon with a continuation of our hermeneutics podcast, but uh, all my prep work and all my time, all my free time recently has went into this sermon um, and preparing for it. So Jordan and I will be back with another hermeneutics very soon, and I hope you guys will join us for a continuation of that. But for now, let's get into John chapter 19. Let's get started. Jordan asked me to preach I don't know how long ago it was he's he's good about giving me notice which I really appreciate Um, it's always a a beautiful a beautiful burden that's the best way I can really explain it is uh, every time I'm asked to preach I am both very very excited because I love the Word of God I love to to talk about it (laughs) and uh, um, at the same time um, I feel the weight of his word, his holiness, and the necessity to do my homework to make sure that to the absolute best of my capability, I am uh, honoring what he has written in his word. So in my sermon today, there's going to be lots of scripture. Um, some of it I will read to you. Some of it uh, I will ask that we read together. Um This helps me to guard against my own thoughts, my own words, um, and it helps to exalt what God has written, because what he's written is better than what anyone else could come up with, obviously. Um, So I just want to go over the, uh, uh, a review of the context of sort of where we are, uh, and then, uh, and pray and, and, and we'll get into it. And uh, just bear with me, I'm, I'm a bit under the weather, my throat's sort of getting scratchy the last couple days. I'm not actually feeling very good. I'm pretty tired. Um, but anyways, it's it's not about me or about that. Um, just want to ask you guys for your prayers as we go through this together this morning, um, that my voice would hold up at least. It would be great. Um, so let's get into the context uh, before we, we pray and get into our passage here. So Jordan did a really good job. Uh, I listened to his sermon twice. It's the first time I've ever done that. It was, it was definitely worth it. Uh, he did a really good job of finishing off chapter 18. Uh, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but we do want to uh, keep in mind that when we're going into chapter 19, it's just a continuation of the story that we were reading uh, from chapter 18. So what has happened in 18, just to recap, is that Jesus was delivered to Pilate from Caiaphas and the high priests. Um, the Jews' defense of why they were doing it was, well, look at how many of us are here and we all agree. They didn't really have an, a, a real defense. Um, Pilate tells the Jews to deal with Jesus themselves. And they couldn't because they were not allowed to under Roman Roman law. 
we see Pilate questioning Jesus, and Jesus tells Pilate that he's not really from around here. My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate declares Jesus to be free of guilt, and then he offers to the Jews to, uh, to release either Jesus or Barabbas, the um, murderer and revolutionary. So that's what we were working with in 18, just to sum it up. Uh, and now we're going to see a continuation of this narrative and a continuation of an interaction between the Jews, Jesus, and Pilate as we get into chapter 19. So I'm just going to pray uh, and then we can, we can start going through the passage together. Father, as we open your beautiful and your holy word this morning, Lord, I ask that um, you would sustain my voice so I would be able to speak, Lord. Uh, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can gather here this morning and that we can talk about you, uh, that we can look to your perfect and holy word to see uh, who we are in the light of scripture and the beauty of your son in the light of scripture. I ask, uh, Holy Spirit, as we go through this passage, Lord, that you would um, open ears and hearts to receive your word, and you would change hearts as only you are capable of, Lord. I know I have nothing to do with it other than bringing the, mess in, uh, bringing the message, delivering the mail. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would work in each heart this morning, including my own. Amen. Okay. I'm going to read where uh, our passage today is John chapter 19, and we're going to be doing verse 1 through 16. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go through it. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Okay. Let's go through the text together. Starting back in verse 1. So we see Pilate is deeming Jesus innocent again. Uh, I want to just remind us of that. He's, he, we've read that in, at the end of 18. 
He's found no guilt, and he's going to be doing that again, uh, saying that again. But Pilate, even though he deems Jesus innocent, he still delivers him over to the Roman soldiers to be brutally whipped and flogged. Um, the Roman soldiers, uh, they didn't have like the 39 lashes cutoff rule. Uh, and if you were not a Roman citizen, which Jesus was not, it was pretty much a free-for-all. Um, so the, the scourge or the scourge, however you say it, it was a whip and it was designed to tear flesh off the human body. Um, it would have uh, pieces of, of fabric and then at the end there would be fragments of bone or even metal. And it was specifically designed to be embedded as, as the person was whipped and beaten, that the pieces would be embedded into that person's flesh and that their flesh would then be torn off of their body. Sometimes people even would die just from this. Not, they wouldn't even get to the crucifixion. They would die simply because the beating was so brutal. Um, in verse 2, we see that the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head, on Jesus' head, and they put him in a purple robe as well. So the thorns were most likely from a date palm, and they could have been up to 12 inches long, like a foot long, and fashioned together and then pressed into Jesus' head. They also put a purple robe on him in order to make a mockery of him as the king of the Jews. And uh, one detail that Matthew actually includes in his account of this story in uh, chapter 27, he actually tells us that they placed a reed in Jesus' hand as well, like to be like a scepter. And then they took that and they beat Jesus with that. The Roman soldiers mocked Jesus, as we see in verse 3 saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. They were hitting him. And although their leader, Pilate, had already declared no fault in Jesus whatsoever, these soldiers revealed in their ability to exercise brutal punishment over a seemingly defenseless man that they were eager to do evil when presented the opportunity. Uh, Calvin says it like this, quote, ungodly men eagerly seize on the opportunity of doing evil whenever it is offered to them. So these Roman soldiers, similar to Pilate, even, even less so, they don't really have a horse in the race, so to speak. They don't really care. They're, they're indifferent. They're just Roman soldiers. Their, their job is to uh, whip people, beat people. They would take turns doing it, by the way because they would get so tired out from beating that they would actually have to switch. Um, and they take this opportunity to beat a man that I'm sure they don't, it doesn't tell us, but do they care if he's innocent or not? They're just doing what they've been told to do by Pilate. And they take every opportunity to make a mockery of Jesus, to spit on him, to hit him, to pull out his beard, uh, and to mock him as a what they deem as a fake king. Moving on to verse 4. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, that's the Jews, Behold the man. So as Pilate brings Jesus before the crowd, uh, Jesus would have been barely recognizable. Um, and this is actually... Uh, uh, fulfilling of, of what we read in Isaiah 52, 14, which I'll read to you, which says, So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Then we see Pilate again declares that Jesus is innocent. So in John's gospel, this is the third time Pilate is now declaring that Jesus is innocent innocent. Um, I would like to flip over together to Luke chapter 23 verses 13 to 16 so that we can get Luke's perspective on what's going on here as well. A beautiful thing about the Gospels is they complement each other. Some details are left out uh, in certain ones that are given in others and they're a great resource to go to for more detail. So Luke 23, 
13 to 16. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done, has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and I will release him. And actually, I'd like to read um, 18 here as well. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. So that's sort of a summary, of, uh, a picture of what's going on at the end of 18 and here at the start of 19 as well from, from the Gospel of Luke. So Pilate is, is saying to, to the Jews, Everything you were saying about this man, I deem to be false. Everything you've brought him here to me, claiming that he's done or claiming the reasons that I should have him executed, I don't believe those reasons. So let's keep that in mind as we continue on. Let's keep that in mind that that's what Pilate thought. That's what he really thought is this guy's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. We'll see if that affects in any way. Uh, his reaction and his behavior as we as we continue on in in the text. It, v verse uh, the other point I want to make here from verse five. Behold the man. So Pilate is essentially saying, "Look, here he is. Look at this guy. I've had him whipped. I've had him beaten. He's bleeding. There's blood coming out of his head, his back, everywhere. I've made a mockery of him." He's in this pathetic state. He's got no defense. He's got no army coming to rescue him. This, this guy has no chance to really be a true king. Is that not good enough for you? When the chief priests, verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him and crucify him yourself, for I find no guilt in him. So the hatred and the, the frenzy of the chief priests had reached a, a, a boiling point, so to speak, a point of no return. Not even the most severe of beatings could satisfy the bloodlust that they had for Jesus. Uh, John uses the words here, They cried out. So, they didn't suggest, they didn't imply, they didn't say gently or politely. They cried out. Um, think about if, if you've ever been, been watching a, a movie. And a lot of action movies are sort of uh, like based on revenge. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Man on Fire with Denzel Washington. It's a bit of an older one. But if you haven't... Uh, essentially, he's in charge of protecting this, this beautiful little girl, and the little girl gets kidnapped by these brutal, brutal men. And Denzel Washington has an, has an insatiable desire to find the men who are responsible for what happened and to get revenge, to end their lives and get this little girl back. Um, nothing can stop him in that scenario. And... I don't want to spoil the movie for you if you haven't seen it, but uh, it may or may not cost him his life in the end. That's how motivated he was. And that's in a somewhat admirable, in a sense, or justifiable action, saving a little girl. But here we see the chief priests attacking an innocent man with an insatiable bloodlust. They would not stop. Just as we've been reading in 18, they, and we're going to continue reading, they will not stop until Jesus is dead, until they get what they want. Nothing is going to stand in their way. The innocence of the Son of God is, is juxtaposed to the guilt of the Pharisees here. And Pilate says to them, Take him and crucify him yourselves, for I find no guilt in him. 
So Pilate tries to diffuse the situation in a sense again. Again, he's saying, I don't find any guilt in him. He's also, in a way, mocking the Jews in a sense because they've already admitted in chapter 18, verse 31, that they do not have the authority to kill Jesus. So Pilate is, deal with him yourselves. And in Jordan's sermon, he said that we can, we can see Pilate as, you know, this is early in the morning. Maybe he's got his bathrobe on and he's like, oh man, like, get this mob out of here. Like, this is ridiculous. I just want to get on with my day. And I think that, that we can faithfully um, look, at, look at this passage and we can see Pilate maybe as having many mixed emotions. Anger, uh, he could have been annoyed, perturbed, apathetic, even somewhat compassionate in a sense. And he's, he's saying again, deal with him yourselves. Take him and crucify him yourselves. I don't find any guilt in him. So the Jews, we're going to see the Jews' response here in, in verse 7. They don't go back to what we saw in, in chapter 18, where they say, hey man, look, we, we're not allowed to do that. They don't go back there again. They actually appeal to their own law. And we're going to see that here in verse 7. They, say, they answered uh, Pilate, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. So, what law were they talking about? Um, most likely, they were thinking about Leviticus 24.16. I'll just read it for you. Leviticus 24.16 says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So, were they justified in what they were saying? Well, in a sense, yes. We know that they weren't because we know that Jesus truly is the Son of God. But that law is a law for a reason, and it's God's law. It was a law that was given that if anyone was to make himself out to be a God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. So if someone's making themselves out to be a God, and the evidence shows that they're really not a God, God has given provision in the, in the Old Testament, in the law, to take care of that issue. They said to Pilate, he has made himself the son of God. So let's get uh, a little more um, clarity on what that might mean and where they're getting that from, where they're coming from. So to do that, let's go together to John chapter 10 and we're going to start in verse 22. John chapter 10, starting in 22. And we'll read through verse 33. At the time of the feast at the time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon so the Jews gathered around him and said to him how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ tell us plainly Jesus answered them I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. <clears throat> my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So there's more instances of that, where the Jews were very angry at Jesus because he was making himself equal with God. But that gives us a good picture here um, from John's own gospel. 
of why the Jews were saying to Pilate that he has made himself out to be the son of God. So even though in that passage we just read in John chapter 10, that Jesus goes on to explain that if he's not doing the works of the Father, that they shouldn't believe in him, but because he does the works of the Father, they should believe. And uh, actually verse 38 in, in chapter 10 says that Jesus says that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. So he's explaining to them, this is why you should understand this. This is what the Jews had in mind when they made that statement to Pilate. But we see a completely different reaction from Pilate in uh, verse 8. And the reason we see that is because we have a clash of cultures here in this passage. We have the Jewish culture and we have the pagan Roman culture, which are completely different. And so we're going to see a different reaction from Pilate. We're also going to answer the question of why was Pilate so afraid. So, verse 8 uh, in, our, in our text here in 19. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. Well, why is he so afraid? Up to this point, we have seen more or less an indifference or a perturbed annoyance to the situation. And as this is happening early in the morning, that could have contributed you know, to the perturbed and annoyed position of Pilate, um, unless he's a morning person. I'm definitely not. So this is happen happening early in the morning, and after continuously trying to defuse the situation, uh, and even having Jesus whipped and beaten to try and satisfy the Jews, it's, it's still not working. But when Pilate hears the words, Son of God, Pilate is not thinking in a messianic sense. Why would he be? Is, is he a Jew? Is Pilate a Jew? No, uh, he's not. He's, he's a pagan Roman. And he's not, he's not freaking out. He's not afraid because the Jews have a law. Oh no, you have a law. Do you think he cares? Because the Romans rule over the Jews. The Jews are subject. Pilate doesn't care about their law. Why would he? The law doesn't scare him. Luke tells us in, uh, in his account in chapter 23 that, that Pilate knows that Jesus is from Galilee. But the pagan Romans were very superstitious. And they believed that the gods could and would come to earth as men, as we see in Acts chapter 14. Um, and in Acts chapter 14, actually, you know what? Let's, uh, let's flip there together and we'll read a couple verses. So go to Acts chapter 14 and we'll start in verse 8. Acts 14, starting in verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that his, he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave you, leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you the rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And, and here's the point I want to hit home from this passage in verse 18. Even with these words, 
they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So, these are pagan Roman people. And they're believing that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes in human flesh. So, in the light of that, we can look at this verse here in verse 8. When, it, when Pilate is afraid because he heard Son of God. So this is, this is what Pilate would have in mind. He would have in mind that even though he knows Jesus from Galilee, man, is this guy a, is this guy a God? Is this guy going to bring a curse on me if I do something to him? They were very superstitious. Uh, Matthew also gives us another detail in, in his account uh, in chapter 27. Um, and I'll just read this for you. Uh, this is from verse 19. Now while he, Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So Matthew shed some light on the situation as well. So, not only would Pilate have his pagan Roman worldview in mind, he's also received a message from his own wife saying, I had a dream about this guy, don't touch him. Let's see what happens here in, uh, in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So he's not asking if he's from Galilee, he knows that. Pilate was surely recalling his early conversation, earlier conversation with Jesus, uh, where Jesus stated that his kingdom was not of this world. And uh, in Jordan's sermon last Sermon Sunday, um, he said that, you know, here's maybe this perceived as like this crazy hippie who's like, yeah, man, I'm not, you know, I'm from outer space or whatever. Like, I'm not from around here. I'm from another world. And Pilate's like, okay, whatever. But now it's seeming to really affect him. So he goes back in. He asks Jesus again where he's from, but Jesus doesn't answer him. Um, and that's fulfilling uh, another prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7, uh, which says that like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. Um, we are going to see an answer from Jesus actually right, uh, right afterwards in verse 10. And uh, Jordan did a, a really good job of explaining both and in his last sermon. So I would encourage you to go back and listen if, if you don't remember, because I, I don't want to reiterate what he's already said. Um, so we see in verse 10 here, Pilate say, uh, saying to Jesus, after Jesus wouldn't answer him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Do you know who I am, Jesus? I know you're from this backwater town in Galilee. I know you're from, you know, wherever. But don't you understand who I am? I'm Pilate. I can tell these guys to kill you. Or I can tell them not to kill you. Who is this guy? Is he crazy? Is he just some crazy man that the Jews are sick of and they just want to get rid of? Is he actually some kind of God? Lowercase g. Seriously, Jesus, I'm trying to help you out here and you won't even answer me? I've said you're innocent. Give me an answer. Could you imagine if you were committed, if you were uh, accused of a crime that you did not commit and you were taken to the Supreme Court, which is the highest court that we have in Canada? And you had every right to defend yourself because you were blameless and innocent. And yet, for the sake of someone else or some others, you remain silent. You have every right. You didn't do anything. You have every defense. And you could defend yourself if you wanted to. But you don't. We're going to see Jesus break his silence and answer here in uh, verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me 
at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Acts 2.23 says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. And Luke 2.22 says, For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So, let me ask you a question here. Is God in sin because he's the one who planned this and turned Jesus over to Pilate? Because essentially, it's, it's God's plan. I mean, Acts, what we just read in Acts, what we just read in Luke, which are both written by Luke, he's telling us God predetermined this to happen. Well, we know that God can't be in sin, of course. It's a rhetorical question. Uh, because we know that there's no sin in him, according to Deuteronomy 3.24. And even Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 5.48 that we are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. We also know that Pilate is not the one who turned Jesus in. He's actually the one receiving him. Pilate's definitely not pardoned in the condemnation and the... And the uh, crucifixion of, of Jesus just because he said he found him innocent and tried to place the onus on the Jews, tried to pass the, pass the blame. This most likely is actually referring to Caiaphas, uh, who we saw back in chapter 18, 28, that, uh, where it says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So this is most likely talking about Caiaphas and, and the, uh, the, the high priest's who are the ones that sent Jesus to Pilate. <clears throat> and if you recall way back in chapter 11 of John, it was actually Caiaphas himself that unknowingly prophesied that Jesus would die when he said it would be better for one man to die for the sake of all the people rather than having Rome come and take away uh, the power that the Jews had. Pilate, in his people-pleasing and knowing the right thing to do but not doing it, he's still guilty. But the greater sin is on Caiaphas and the chief priests, the people who should have known, who rejected Christ. And from what Matthew tells us in chapter 27, they, they said this, His blood be on us and our children. Like, put it on us. Like, Pilate, we want you to do this. Put it on us. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now we're going to see a switch here. So Pilate's looking for a reason to release Jesus. Perhaps partially because he really truly does believe that Jesus is innocent. I mean, he must have. He said it multiple times. Maybe partially because he's scared. Because he thinks maybe Jesus is some kind of God that's going to put a curse on him if he does something to him. But he's being pressured by the Jews at the same time. So he's sort of getting it from all directions, actually. So Pilate looks for a reason to release Jesus. But the Jews turn the conversation, if you can even call it a conversation, uh, in another direction. So earlier, we have seen that the Jews, um, they appealed to their own law. And that obviously had no effect on Pilate. Over and over and over, he said, nope, this guy's innocent, nope. The, the most he did was send Jesus for a brutal beating. But he still wasn't capitulating to their demand for crucifixion, for execution. That was when the Jews were appealing to their own law. Now we are going to see them turn, uh, turn the gun, turn the crosshairs, so to speak, and they're going to aim it at Pilate himself. <clears throat> so, Pilate's own position and the implications that go along with it, this is what they're going to attack. 
Uh, Pilate's resisted. He's put up an argument. But let's see together as we read on here what actually happens as soon as Pilate's life, his position, his influence, and his personal safety, and that of his family, I would imagine as well, are questioned and even targeted. Um, just a note here on not Caesar's friend, um, and this is a, a quote from John MacArthur. Um, as I was prepping for this, I thought this was a, a great thing to just put in here from, from uh, MacArthur. And he says, uh, regarding not Caesar's friend, This statement by the Jews was loaded with irony, for the Jews' hatred of Rome certainly indicated that they too were no friends of Caesar. But they knew that Pilate feared Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, since he had a highly suspicious personality and exacted ruthless punishment. Pilate had already created upheaval in Palestine by several foolish acts that had infuriated the Jews and was under scrutiny of Rome to see if his ineptness continued. The Jews were intimidating him by threatening another upheaval that could spell the end of his power in Palestine if he didn't execute Jesus. So that's the target, the new target, Pilate himself. Uh, so let's see, see his reaction here as soon as the crosshairs are pointed at him. Uh, verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Arama Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of pass. Uh, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, "Behold your king!" They cried out, "Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him!" Pilate said to them, "Shall I crucify your king?" The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. The irony here is, is thick. It's also very heartbreaking. Um, the chief priest should have known. They were the most well-educated, most familiar people with the law. And in this statement here, they deny the, the clear truth of God as their king in order to fulfill that bloodlust that they have for Jesus. They would have known this very well. Isaiah 33, 22, which says, For Yahweh is our judge, Yahweh is our lawgiver, Yahweh is our king, he will save us. They would have known this, they would have been educated in this, and yet they deny it outright. For the sake of their own purpose. Here's what Ellicott says about the statement, We have no king but Caesar. They are driven by Pilate's taunt and by their hatred of Jesus to a denial of their own highest hopes. They who gloried in the theocracy and hoped for a temporal messianic reign which should free them from Roman bondage. They who boasted in John 8.33, <clears throat> that they were never in bondage to any man. Obviously, that's not true. I mean, think about 400 plus years in Egypt, just for example, or exile in Babylon. Um, Ellicott continues, They who were the chief priests of the Jews confess that Caesar is their only king. The words were doubtless meant as those in John 19.12 to drive Pilate to comply with their wishes under the dread of an accusation at Rome. And they did have this effect. That's what Ellicott had to say on that. And that's the exact result that we see. We see that in verse 16. Here's the result. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. <clears throat> After the Jews had given the answer, we have no king but Caesar. They'd pointed all the fingers back on Pilate. Then Pilate just folds. He gives Jesus over. All, all the fighting, all the arguing, all the pressure he had put back on the Jews before, gone in an instant. <clears throat> he put up an argument until he was the object 
of their scrutiny. So, in light of these 16 verses here in our, in our passage, um, I want to ask you guys, uh, where do you see yourselves in the story? We've seen earlier uh, in chapter 18, in Peter's denial, we've seen ourselves in that, of course. Um, but I want to I want to ask you, where do you see yourself in this story? I'm sure you probably don't see yourself. Maybe you do, but you probably don't see yourself as one of the chief priests who were like ravenous dogs in calling for the execution of Christ. Or, or do you? I think we'd be remiss if we didn't realize the implications of our own unbelief before God's sovereign calling and the Holy Spirit opening our hearts and our minds to see Jesus for who he truly is. It's really easy for us to, um, to look at people around us, even other believers who may not hold the exact theological convictions and position as we do, and say something like, what on earth is wrong with these people? Why can't they just understand it? It's so clear. I mean, look, it's obvious. But 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually examined. And Ephesians 2.1-3 says, And you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So we cannot look at the Pharisees in, in these 16 verses and, and the ones before in 18, in this whole entire narrative, without the light of who we are, according to Scripture, before we know Christ by grace through faith. <clears throat> Paul tells us in Romans 8, 7, that our, minds, uh, that, that our minds were set on our flesh and that they were hostile towards God. That we weren't even able to subject ourselves to the law of God. This was us. And this was you. So we have to have this at the forefront of our minds as we minister and as we evangelize to people who are still lost, whether they claim Christ or not. We have to have this at the forefront of our minds. We, every single one of us, myself included, we would have been right there with the Pharisees, right beside them, screaming, crying out for Jesus' execution if it was in any way to our benefit to do so, or if it pleased our flesh to do so. Think of the Roman soldiers beating him. They didn't have a horse in the race, but they did it anyway. Either that, or we would have been like Pilate, indifferent, and maybe even appearing to affirm the innocence of Jesus. Or some other thing, uh, like, yeah, yeah, I believe, yeah, Jesus is God, or yeah, he's a good, good person, or yeah, I believe this or that about him. Yeah, sure. But let me ask you this. Do we, do you only do this when it's convenient? Pilate was seemingly all for defending Jesus until the gun was pointed at him. So let me ask you, can you see yourself in Pilate in this story? Titus 1.16 says that we deny him, Jesus, by the works that we do. It's all fine when it's to our benefit, in some sense, to uphold the things of God and faith in Christ. But when the finger is pointed at you, when the gun is pointed at you, when the pressure is on you, what will you do? Pilate was not willing 
to lose his influence, his power, his position, his authority, his safety, and potentially risk his life to do something he knew was right. He's told us over and over and over, I find this man to be blameless, innocent. I find no guilt in him. He knew the right thing to do. And that would have been, obviously, to release Jesus and to execute Barabbas. He himself said, I have the authority to release or crucify you. Even though the Jewish mob was in such a frenzy, Pilate still could have stood for what he knew to be truthful. And keep in mind, he was a pagan Roman idolater. Here's what John Calvin has to say about that. If reverence for God had so much influence on an irreligious man, must not they be worse than reprobate, who now judge of the divine things in sport and in jest, carelessly and without any fear? For indeed, Pilate is a proof that many men have a naturally a, a sentiment of religion which does not suffer them to rush fearlessly in any direction they choose when the question relates to divine things. <clears throat> this is the reason why I say that those who, in handling the doctrine of Scripture, are not more impressed with the majesty of God than if they had been disputing about the shadow of a donkey. They are given to a reprobate mind. Yet, they will one day feel to their destruction what veneration is due to the name of God, which they now treat with such disdainful and outrageous mockery. So Pilate is not a Christian. He's not a Jew. He's a pagan. And he still almost did the right thing. Almost. But he didn't. We are in a completely different category. At least we should be. Do we handle Jesus in a nonchalant manner? And one more question to you guys. Do we make light of his lordship and his commands? I want to point out um, two categories of unbelief here. Pilate and the Pharisees. We are one or the other, or in some cases, if we're pressed, we can become both. This is us, apart from God's grace and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Just like Peter, if we are not walking in the power of the Spirit, we will be tempted to deny Christ when it becomes socially or culturally unacceptable to stand for the truth of his word. The truth that is clearly laid out in scripture for us. Now, I want to I want to maybe uh I want to maybe uh get in get into something here a little bit for a moment. So the past 2 years, if you if you didn't realize there was a pandemic, so-called pandemic going on, whatever your view on that is, that's not my point. My point is, <clears throat> we didn't shut down. True North didn't shut down. From what I'm aware of, every other church in this area did. Does that make us any better than them or any worse than them? Depending on who you speak, sure, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. We have seen in our country, um, over the last two years, churches and pastors all for the things of God, all for the truth. Yeah, I love Jesus. I, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. I love Him. He's the Savior of my soul. I, I'll do anything for Him except get a fine or except have society tell me that I'm unloving because I'm killing people by having my church open or whatever it is. I want to keep in mind that it's only because of God's grace that we were not in that same position. It's only because of the Holy Spirit's work in, in our hearts that we had the boldness to not be a Peter in that situation and deny what we knew to be true. But this is what we've seen in our country. Capitulation to governmental and societal pressure. When, when the culture is crying out, be loving, be loving, be loving. Close your church, it's the loving thing to do. 
Affirm LGBTQ, it's the loving thing to do. Apologize for being white. I don't have to do that. It's the loving thing to do, everybody else in this room. <laughs> it's the loving thing to do. So as we wrap up, let me ask you, is there an area of your life where you are living out Titus 1.16, where you deny him by the things that you do? Is there an area in your life where you're indifferent or apathetic to him? Is there an area in your life that you are even hostile towards him? I mean, even if Paul in, at the end of Romans chapter 7 is telling us that there's things that he does that he doesn't want to do. That's Paul. Like, you know, after Jesus, it's Paul. He's sort of a big deal. And even he's saying, hey, look, there's, there's things that I battle with that I don't want to do. And that's, that's our hostile flesh trying to come back out. So I ask you, in the light of, of this passage, in the light of the Pharisees and Pilate, examine yourself. And I will do the same. And this is in the spirit of uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 to see if, if your faith is genuine. Now, I'm not sitting here questioning your salvation, by the way. Do you, do we, truly love Jesus no matter what the cost might be? We did pretty good with the COVID thing, but what if it gets harder? What if they threaten to take our kids? What if they threaten to arrest us? What's, what are we going to do then? This is the reality for a lot of our brothers and sisters, even now in the world, all over the world. If war comes, there's a war going on right now, and there's faithful brothers and sisters willing to die for the gospel, for the truth. <clears throat> Jesus himself says in John 14, 50, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Now, he also said that we need to be perfect like, his, like our heavenly father's perfect. Does that mean that we are always going to be perfect? Absolutely not. If we could somehow please God in and of ourselves, there would be zero need for Christ's sacrifice because we, we could do it by our own works. But if the desire to obey, and this is my point here, if the, if the desire to obey is only there when it's convenient or when it's culturally acceptable until cultural or societal pressures arise, that's a call for alarm. If you're all for Jesus until it's not cool or okay or acceptable to be all for Jesus, that's cause for alarm. Was it convenient for Jesus to die on the cross? For him to be whipped and have a crown of thorns pressed into his head to be mocked by people he created, whom he knew? Was it convenient for him to humble himself and be born as a man, king of the universe, king of kings, lord of lords? Was it convenient for him to resist the devil perfectly and allow himself to be murdered by wicked men? Was it convenient for him to be crushed under the full weight of the wrath of God for your specific sins? No, it wasn't convenient. There's a reason he was sweating blood. And it wasn't the crown of thorns. It wasn't the... Uh, the whip, and it wasn't the cross itself. It was the wrath of God the Father crushing him as he was completely forsaken for you specifically on the cross. Just like Jesus restored Peter after Peter denied him and gave Peter the charge to feed his sheep and to build his church, he can restore us even when we deny him. And that is the hope that I want to give at the end. I've asked you, is there an area in your life, either by, by, by action or, or by belief or by words that you are denying Christ? Well, if the answer to that is yes, there is hope. 
Because as Peter repented and was broken over his sin, Jesus restored Peter and he charged him to feed his sheep and to, and to build the church. That is the hope I want to give you guys as we wrap up here. Ephesians 2, as I read earlier, said how, uh, says how we are dead in our sins. So I want to read uh, one last passage together in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. And this is the reality and the hope for us pilots and us Pharisees. And all the pilots and Pharisees who are still out there, who might be in our lives, that we are called to minister the gospel to and bear witness to. Romans 5, <clears throat> 6 to 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his, loves, shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we also be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we don't have, we don't have specific information or revelation regarding the Jews in that crowd that day that were calling out for Jesus' death. But perhaps some of them were maybe even saved later. And perhaps some of them we will meet in eternity and we will get to hear their story of how God saved them, even after they called for the death of his son. Put yourself in their or Pilate's shoes as you reflect on this passage and, the truth, and these truths um, for the rest of the day or even the week. See yourself in the crowd condemning Jesus or as the indifferent judge. Repent of those areas that need, that need it. And after you've done that, rest in the beautiful truth of who you are now in Christ because of his willing sacrifice on your behalf. I'll close in prayer for us. <clears throat> God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for keeping my voice going through this, um, through this time. Lord, I pray that uh, as we reread your, your beautiful and your holy word of, of what your glorious son has, has done for us, that we, would, that we would see ourselves in the Pharisees' shoes and in Pilate's shoes, but that we would also see ourselves in the light of who we are now because of your Son. We thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for calling us. We thank you for uh, adopting us as sons and daughters. We thank you for clothing us in the, in the righteousness of Christ that we could not earn. Uh, we thank you that we are bought by his precious blood and that even though he had every right to defend himself, to call down legions of angels, that he didn't and that he willingly went to the cross for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have thought of us in, your rich, in, in the richness of your grace and your mercy, that you have thought of us and that you have deemed it good to save pilots and Pharisees and Peters like us. God, I ask for a holy boldness that we would not fall into these categories, Lord. Um, but at the same time, God, I thank you that even, if, even in those times where we do and we do mess up, Lord, that your grace abounds and that you are rich in mercy and you are, and you are um, slow, to uh, slow to anger and, and that you forgive us. Lord, when we are truly broken in repentance. 
I thank you for this time together as a family. I pray that um, our conversations would bless you and be a fragrant offering to you uh, for the rest of the day as we spend some time together. I thank you for, for your church, Lord, for this beautiful church that you have uh, raised up in this area and for blessing me and allowing me to be a part of it. You are so good. You are so holy, Lord. You are so worthy of all praise. We love you. We, we wish to honor you and serve you. Amen. Check one, two, first Water to the dry and weary soul of the true church The kind of things that few search They say that the truth hurts Well this pain is gained So let's explain the new birth First things first Can't neglect us at the start I must preface my remarks With the deadness of the heart From original sin The effects of the fall The sin of our first parents Brought death to us all Since Adam was our federal head What he did counted for us In him were all rebels and dead Yo, captured in the mind Disaster, sin and crimes In a dark state Alaska in the winter time Sour in our Left to ourselves, we be devoured in the flames Cause we're powerless to change If you feel that way, I pray that you respond happily As you see what Jesus had to say in John chapter 3 